Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, we're finally reaching the end of our current submissions period. If you have a terrifying tale you've been itching to submit, you've got just a couple of weeks left to do so. Details at talestoterrify.com slash submissions. Also, with all of the changes that have happened here at the podcast over the last year, I think it's time for a little new music, too. But to do that, we could really use your help. In the next few days, we'll be launching a GoFundMe page where you can chip in a few dollars to help us raise the money necessary for a terrifying new, professionally produced intro and outro. I'll be sharing the details on social media as soon as it's up, so check our Facebook and Twitter for details in the next few days. But right now, we've got some ground to cover. Let's see what the state of Delaware has in store. Cape Henlopen frames the southern edge of the Delaware Bay along the Atlantic coast. It's home to a beautiful state park with plenty of sun and surf for a fun, relaxing day at the beach. But on Christmas Day of 1655, the Cape was anything but fun and relaxing for the passengers and crew of the British packet ship the Devonshire Man. The ship carried a group of Quakers bound for a new life in Philadelphia. Their friends and family were back home in England, most likely warm around a roaring fire. But those aboard the Devonshire Man were wet and cold and tired. They'd been stuck on the cramped ship for weeks, tossed about the dark, swirling waters of the Atlantic. But despite the cold and damp, they were in good spirits. They were nearing the Delaware coast and the new life that awaited them in America. And as soon as word of approaching landfall reached the lower decks, 
Passengers began to trickle up to the top. They leaned on the rails, peering over the side of the ship, straining to catch a glimpse of their new home. But aside from the occasional beam of moonlight filtering through the clouds and reflecting off the white-capped waves, there wasn't much to see but darkness. The waters of Delaware Bay, especially around Cape Henlopen, could be treacherous for ships at the best of times, and a dark, cloudy night made it that much more dangerous. But the man at the helm of the Devonshire man was experienced. Captain Faulkner had safely made this run dozens of times, and his confident presence put the crew at ease. There, Captain, off starboard, the lookout called down. A light. It wasn't quite the steady, piercing beam Captain Faulkner had expected, but a bright light on the coast could only be one thing. The helpful, burning beacon that signaled the southernmost tip of New Jersey. Most likely, he thought, the flickering was due to some low-lying clouds or fog. Captain Faulkner adjusted course and made to sail around the Cape, as he had so many times before. Long minutes passed as the ship sliced through the water into the safety of Delaware Bay, the passengers' anticipation growing with every rise and dip of the bow their final destination rapidly approaching. With a sudden rending crash, the ship lurched violently. The groan and snap of buckling wood and iron sliced through the quiet ocean night. Passengers were knocked off their feet and crew fell from the rigging. Before the people on board could comprehend what was happening, the Devonshire man began to list sideways the loud rush of water pouring into the decks below. Cargo and people slid about the deck and over the railing as the pounding surf continued to smash the hull to pieces against the rocks. In mere minutes, the Devonshire man was gone beneath the waves, taking with it the lives of more than two hundred people and leaving nothing but a swirling patch of flotsam caught in the ocean's icy grip. The small handful of those lucky enough to swim to shore found the cape entirely deserted. But when they recovered enough to start exploring their surroundings, they were baffled. They were nowhere near New Jersey that they could tell. In fact, they were on the opposite point of the bay. Where the captain, crew, and passengers had spotted the bright light, that supposed beacon of safety, there was nothing. No evidence that a ghost light or signal fire had ever existed there. Those aboard the Devonshire man didn't know it, but they were the unfortunate victims of a curse. A curse placed on that small point of land for any who would dare to come by ship, whether to loot, pillage, or even just to live. In the early days of colonization, other travelers had come from across the sea and arrived at the Cape, the home of the Leni Lenape people and location of a sacred marriage site. And these travelers made their intentions clear with steel and gunpowder. Two prominent Leni Lenape tribes had gathered at the sacred place that is Cape Henlopen. 
it was a huge celebration. Their two nations had long been at war, but finally their conflict was at an end. Through the bond of marriage, their people would be one, and they'd be able to prosper and enjoy a lasting peace. During the height of the festivities, the British soldiers attacked. Caught off guard, most of the Lene Lenape men were slaughtered, the women carried off. But a small group of men survived, including the would-be groom. They tracked the soldiers for weeks, finding the bodies of their captured people littered behind in the soldiers' wake each time the groom fearing it was his bride. Until finally, he found her, his bride defiled and murdered near the shores of the Cape. Rage burned deep within him, violent and explosive. He called to the spirits, called on them to curse these intruders, these would-be colonizers. His rage would fuel a signal fire that would burn bright on the headland, luring any who would seek to follow in their footsteps to a watery grave. And unfortunately for the people of the Devonshire man, it seems the spirits listened. The corpse light of Cape Henlopen State Park, as it's become known, is still said to appear on the small jut of land at the entrance to Delaware Bay. If you're out hiking the park after dusk, you might just catch a glimpse of the bright, flickering light calling to you. Or, if you're really lucky, some nights it's said you can see the echo of the Devonshire man, its sinking hull crashing and screeching against the shoals of the bay, the ghostly screams of the drowning dead rolling in with the waves. I don't know about you, but that's whet my appetite for some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Jules Zellman. Jules Zellman moved to the Pacific Northwest from New Jersey five years ago, but she's encountered neither Sasquatch nor the Jersey Devil. At the age of five, though, she was convinced a demon named Cat's Eyes lived inside the water heater. She loves embroidering improvising, bird-spotting, and imagining what it'd be like to be Ellen Ripley. When not trying to scare herself and other people, she contributes film and theater reviews to The Stranger. Join me, children of the night, for Jules Zellman's The Tale of Bellette, a Tales to Terrify original. They say that in the village of Provence around the year 1680, a baby was born covered in fur. The mother passed away soon after, and the father and three older sisters took care of the tiny girl. She was baptized Christine, but the sisters called her Belette, which means weasel, 
for her sleek chestnut coat. She grew, and her fur became ever softer and shinier. Her sisters spoiled her, running pony brushes over her back and arms. But all too soon, a woman's body shaped itself under the thick pelt. The sisters married and moved to other houses. The home grew sparser and sparser. A widower still in mourning, and a strange young girl with a coat that gleamed ever glossier. Unfortunately, as ocelots, beavers, and bears the world over know. Just because something grows from your skin, doesn't mean others will consider it yours. Madame Fer was a rich merchant's widow who had an excessive love of fineries, but one day, as her hansom bumped over the track from her manor to the town, she saw the strange girl carrying a basket of eggs. It was raining. But the drops of water tumbled down Belette's neck and arms, and she seemed to take no notice, but for the occasional toss of her furred head. Madame Fair felt the scratch of her wool wrap on her nape. She bade her carriage stop alongside the surprised girl. Would you like employment in a fine house? Where you can sleep on fine linens and dine on roast chicken and duck, asked Madame Fair, gazing not at Belette's warm amber eyes, but at the triangular white patch upon her breast. One would have called the girl's garb immodest, save that the fur veiled all. Belette's mouth hung open, exposing sharp little teeth, as she took in the fine lady's pink skin and jeweled gloves. She curtsied clumsily as the carriage rattled away. Next week, Belette put on her nicest dress and her little straw hat, and trudged all the way to the manor. She did not remark that the servants averted their eyes as they showed her into the parlor, but she was astonished when the lady of the house invited her to sit and take tea. Even more shocked was she when Madame Fair herself went straight to the sideboard and poured the drinks. No doubt, Belette should have been watching the porcelain cups instead of gaping at the richly painted ancestral portraits over the fireplace. But she had been raised by loving and gentle people, and she was innocent. When her father and sisters heard of her death by a mysterious ailment, they gathered at the house and wept. When they learned that the body had been buried at once for fear of contagion, they lamented loudly. But when the second youngest sister spied Madame Fair snuggled in her carriage in her brand new fur wrap, brown, with a triangle of snowy white, they all gnashed their teeth and swore revenge. The aged father, the sisters, and their husband waited until nightfall to creep onto the fair estate. While searching for an ingress in the garden, 
they stumbled upon an abandoned well. The eldest woman gestured urgently into its depths. A sound was rising up. A terrible mule. They stole the bucket from the newer well and lowered it rapidly into the hole. Christine, Ballette, is it you? whispered the father in agony. And then the three men were nearly jerked off their feet, for a weight settled on the line. Immediately they hauled as hard as they could. A dark mass emerged and collapsed over the lip of the well. It was a young woman, naked, every inch of her dripping with gore. The only fur left was in a rim around her eyes, which, once so gentle, burned with rage and pain and hunger. How Bellette had not died, how the family transported her home and nursed her to health, I do not know. Several weeks later, Madame Fair's servants began to speak of a horrible figure, wrapped head to toe in thin bandages, slinking on all fours at the edge of the forest that bounded the estate. When they rushed to the spot, they found nothing but a few drops of blood, wetting fallen leaves. Madame Fair took no notice of these foolish tales. But she did take care to lock her bedroom door at bedtime. Once her maid had undressed her and tucked the fur wrap over the duvet. This is perhaps why, when the lady woke the whole household one night with gurgling screams, no one could get in for a full ten minutes. They had to chop the door down, and by then all was silence. The beautiful chestnut fur wrap was ruined forever. So thick and deep was that blood that had soaked in. Madame Fair's most devoted servants, knowing how much she loved it, would have buried her in it but for that fact. Instead, they threw it in the woods, hoping whatever foul ghoul had so soiled it would reclaim it and be done with them. The shutters had to be replaced and the walls stank of iron for weeks afterwards, no matter how much the maids scrubbed. They did not even think for some time to search for signs of robbery. So clearly was the deed a work of maddened animal fury. But indeed, Madame Fair's jewels were missing. No one in Provence ever admitted to seeing sweet Ballette again. But they say that in Paris, a mysterious woman appeared at parties, salons, and operas. Many were enchanted with her sinuous way of moving, her delicate gloved hands. But was she a beauty? Who knows? She never showed her face. It was always concealed behind a mask painted like an aristocratic visage. If one looked close enough, they say, one could see how it was painstakingly sewn together. Not from one large piece, but from tiny scraps 
of delicate leather. That was Jules Elman's The Tale of Belette, as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That is why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase. When not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In-between times are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun imposing snuggles on her two cats, and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. Thank you, Josie. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Our second story this evening is from Philip Fracassi. Philip Fracassi, an author and screenwriter, lives in Los Angeles. His collection of stories... Behold the Void, was published by Journal Stone in March 2017. He has a novella, Fragile Dreams, that was released in November 2016, and a novella, Sacculina, released in May 2017, both from Journal Stone. He is published in several current and upcoming anthologies, and his stories are featured in magazines such as Strange Aeons, Lovecraft Ezine, Ravenwood Quarterly, and Dark Discoveries. Philip currently works full-time in the film industry and on his writing. His screenplay credits include Girl Missing, distributed by Mar Vista Entertainment for Lifetime Television, and Santa Paws 2, The Santa Pops, distributed by Disney Home Entertainment. He has several projects in development. You can follow Philip on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Philip Fricassi. 
Children of the Night, join me for Philip Fracassi's The Rejects, first published in Giraffes on the Moon 2016. Blake hated the dark. A minor phobia that NASA turned a blind eye to in order to keep him in the fold of their specialized employee pool. He thought himself a scientist first, an astronaut second, a distant second. But there were moments, jobs like this one, that required, well, extensive travel. Acquired him to enter the darkest void known by God or man, space. The endless nothing. He considered the contrast between one dark and the other. The one out there, and the one he found himself in right now, hurtling downward at a speed most humans without his unique training would have found nauseating. The elevator was a large service lift for Tex and Mac, a twenty-by-twenty, black, pressurized, inch-thick carbon box speeding into the depths of the moon. They'd been traveling nearly three hours, belted into galvanized chairs. A lot of seats were empty, a VIP trip. Regardless of his status, Blake was getting fidgety. I heard it was hollow, he said. Barbara gave him a sidelong glance. What? The moon, he said, smirking. Heard it was hollow. Didn't you know? The whole damn thing is a Martian spaceship created to keep an eye on us Earthlings. Their guide, an uptight tick of a man named Norris, slid his attention over to him. His features came in flickering bursts of light as the speeding elevator passed line after line of embedded cathode tubing spread every fifty feet or so. They were blipping by at a rate of about one per second. Norris adjusted his wire-framed glasses. Just kidding, Norris. I was gonna say he said, glancing from her back to him, as if careful how much to say in advance of the big show, that you are closer to the truth than you realize. Blake swallowed, nodded. He didn't care for the geeky little man. Though he was peevish and petty, the kind of guy who'd cheat at chess, he looked back at her. Kind of far from the jungles, aren't you, Doc? Barbara looked at the darkness of the hard floor beneath their weighted boots. He suddenly felt like an ass without fully understanding why. I had to leave a very important project for this, she said, throwing a steely glance at Norris, who noticed but simply turned away. Years of work to be finished by someone else. The Africa thing, Eve, he started, knowing very well the project she'd been heading up. The hunt for the mother of all of us. The DNA string that tied us all together. Scientists universally mocked the idea. But she was a follower. A leader, rather, he thought. Norris snorted. Blake's brow bent and a muscle in his jaw twitched, but Barbara just sighed, as if relieved to have it out in the open. The hostility. I assure you, doctor, 
Norris said, looking straight ahead, the pulses of light making him shimmer. This is more important than any project you've ever been part of. She shrugged. Well, whatever it is, I'd like to get to it already, she said, not bothering to look at either of the men riding into the moon with her. It's been a damn annoying six weeks. Barbara. It had been a few years since they were together, but Blake thought she looked exactly the same. Maybe even better. Kind of hard to tell in the space jockey suits they were all sporting, but at least they were able to ditch the headgear at the top. She was right. Six weeks isolated on this rock, cut off from everyone, everything back on Earth. Protocol, they said. Top secret. Until now. The secret was buried deep, whatever it was, in whatever clandestine lair they were being asked to opinionate upon. And based on their light gear, it was airtight. Blake watched the flickering lights glance off Barbara's cheek. He didn't wonder if she still thought of him that way. Waste of his brain's oxygen. He knew she didn't. I second that, he said. We're going to hit Earth pretty soon. Not quite, Norris said under his breath. It was a quip, but there was something in Norris's tone that straightened Blake's smirk. He was getting the feeling this expedition was not of the pleasant discovery or scientific breakthrough nature he was usually called in for. This felt like something else. A turbine blew out like a jet engine winding down, and the elevator slowed as if riding a flattened bubble of pressurized air. The trap came to a soft stop. There was some loud machinery, a brush of air that mussed his hair, and made even Barbara run a hand through her own blonde mane, smoothing it down and making him think about her that way all over again. Blake felt the doors open, but saw nothing. He began to squirm a little inside. The dark was total, and astronauts, training or not, could get as squeamish as anyone when trapped in a foreign place in the pitch black. Throwing in the fact that the place was approximately a hundred kilometers beneath the surface of the moon didn't help with the heebie-jeebies. Not a bit. Norris stepped out of the elevator, and overhead lights barked on, illuminating a long, steel-floored hallway about the length of a football field. The walls were chiseled moon rock. A rush job, thought Blake, and stepped out of the box. After you, Commander, Norris said and smiled, showed teeth. Blake declined, taking the lead. Two. The last of the security doors sealed behind them. It had seemed like an eternity of hallways and metallic stairways, all of it jutting deeper and deeper like a tangle of man-made arteries into the belly of the moon. Blake was about to make a jibe about his hourly rate when he heard voices. Lots of voices. Last door. Norris said, never slowing his quick pace the entire way. Blake felt a pang of embarrassment at how heavily he was breathing to keep up and promised himself a new exercise regimen once he returned to Earth. He was in his forties now, and it was important. Jesus, Barbara said. With a flick of the same ID card he'd used to open the last dozen or so doorways, Norris triggered a large slab of metal the size of a garage door to slide silently away. Well, almost the last door, he added. His face slapped with a fool's grin, his eyes fucking twinkling. 
But Blake had no time for Norris because he was following Barbara through that door into a city. What's this? Blake asked almost inaudibly. Norris wouldn't stop smiling, a new trait that would drive Blake mad had he the capacity to concern himself with the trivial little man. We call it the sight, he said. Blake was waiting for him to rub his hands together maniacally, but he quickly thrust all thoughts of their chaperone aside, took in the wonder of what laid before him. A cavern brilliantly lit by light sources the size of houses stuck fast into the carved ceiling and walls. A cavern the size of a small town, easily a mile in length, half that in girth. Men and women in uniform, navy blue jumpsuits, walked and crawled over the surface of the cavern, some wearing goggles, all wearing gloves. They had tools, and Blake realized with a sudden shock of reality gone sideways what they were doing. Barbara looked at him and met her eyes, his own astonishment reflected on her face, her smile almost beautiful enough to be distracting. They're excavating, she said. Three. Sometime later, after more stairs and another long elevator ride, this time open air, leading ever downward, the scientists were led to a large canvas tent the size of a barracks. A short, plump woman with frizzled black hair and a maddening habit of touching her fingertips to her lips said each of their names in a loud, garish tone. Blake and Barbara shared an amused glance as they seated themselves in a couple of white plastic folding chairs, their names spoken by the woman as if off a call sheet, in the manner a teacher might list the names of each student prior to class. Blake had to make an effort not to raise his hand. After the affirmation of identities, the scientist, who revealed herself to be none other than the world-famous archaeologist Madeline Cooney, or Mad C, as the vast scientific community had nicknamed her, had the lights dimmed. A large, glowing square appealed in the wall behind her. A slideshow had begun. Blake's amusement withered as the brilliant shrew began lecturing about what exactly was happening and why there was a hidden city inside the moon. By the time she arrived at the part about the giraffe, she had their undivided attention. It was thirteen years ago, almost to the day, Mad C said, her voice scratchy and deep with a slight warble, as if she were teetering near a precipice. It was a mistake, actually. Three astronauts of the revived Apollo 23 program found her. They were the first base inhabitants, is that right? Barbara asked hesitantly, a bit out of her field. Mad C nodded enthusiastically. Yes, part of the first hundred of Base One. These were the mineralogists vacuuming literally tons of moon soil through a roving atmosphere chugger made to extract mineral and the minuscule amounts of moisture from the dead soil here. The slide showed the chugger mounting a grayish sandy crest, the background a black curtain. The slide flipped and it showed a patch of soil dotted with white. This is what they uncovered, due west of the Grimaldi crater, on the dark side, that is. The side we can't see, Blake said without humor. Mad C nodded shakily, and a new slide appeared. Barbara couldn't help herself and rose from her chair. Mad C said nothing as Barbara approached the screen, her fingers reaching out for the image. Mad C, her tick momentarily unchecked, was all but swallowing her own fingers with excitement. What the hell is that? 
Blake said, feeling like the dumbest guy in the room. Looks like, Jesus, it looks like an animal. Barbara turned, tears in her eyes. She looked at Mad C. A giraffe. Mad C nodded. That's what we came up with as well. Here, she paused, looked down, and shuffled her feet. She mumbled the next part under her breath, as if ashamed or afraid. At first, Norris piped up from the back of the tent. Blake's eyes darted to his shadow. He'd nearly forgotten about the little man and made a point not to lose track of him again. It's too big, Norris said. Slide. Behind the projector, someone clicked to the next slide, and they all turned to stare. It was the giraffe bones, all laid out now on a tarp, orderly as could be. The puzzle assembled. Next to the giraffe were measuring sticks. A few of them. Barbara counted quicker than Blake. My God, she said, more amazed than afraid. It's nearly thirty feet tall. And the bones are too thick, Mad C added. Thick and strong. Fossilized, yes, but even extracted we could tell the bones were denser stronger. This animal would have been thirty feet high, nearly five feet wide, and strong as ten bulls. Blake looked at the bones, at the two women. He shook his head. This makes no sense. You're telling me there's a giant giraffe roaming the moon? What the hell is this? Mad C raised a hand and the lights popped on in the tent, the slide image swallowed by the light. The giraffe, we think was an anomaly, she said, then started to follow up her thought, but paused, rethinking her approach. It was too close to the surface. The rest were much, much deeper. Barbara looked at Blake, then sat down in a chair, a dazed look in her eye. It was too much for her. Blake stepped behind her, put a hand on her shoulder, not fully knowing if he was supporting her or himself. He looked to Norris, still smiling, then turned back to Mad C. The rest? 4. They walked past hundreds of bustling, agitated excavators, each with their own flurrying purpose. The entire floor was littered with bones. This isn't a dig site, Blake said, looking around in wonder. It's a goddamn tomb. Mad C and Norris exchanged a quick look, as if something in Blake's words struck a nerve. Barbara couldn't keep her eyes from the ground, her biologist's brain kicking into overdrive as she recognized species after species. It's Noah's Ark up here, she said, smiling, her fascination at the discovery overriding whatever mystery it revealed. That's a bear and a lion, she said pointing to raw assemblages of bone structure laid out on temporary platforms around the site. My God, is that? She said, pointing to a far-off stage where the creature was being rebuilt vertically, supported by a thin framework of metal mesh. Tyrannosaurus Rex, Mad C said over his shoulder, as if naming a type of flower Barbara had noticed on their walk through the park. And that's a brontosaurus bone, she said, pointing to a three-foot-long gray wedge walking by in the gloved hand of a young woman who smiled and nodded as they passed. Mad C continued, We've also found species similar to Triceratops, Velociraptors, a Baranynx, thousands more of rare Precambrian fossils. Barbara gave Mad C a quizzical look. 
You said similar. Nora stepped up quickly, intervening. There will be time for you both to study all the remains we have discovered in this rather bizarre site. The most important thing you need to know, what has led you here, is that these fossils, although similar to those found on Earth, are not exactly the same as the species which we are familiar. Mad C continued for him. There are anomalies in every single sample, mostly size-related, like the giraffe. These creatures were bigger, stronger. Some of the fossils, however, are smaller than the species we have on Earth. Some are different in other ways. She shrugged. More savage, more dominant, smaller brains, bigger brains, too many feet. Norris pitched in. What we do know for certain is that the creatures we have found here, well, they wouldn't work on Earth. Barbara stopped walking, rested a hand on Norris's sleeve. What do you mean, wouldn't work? Norris shrugged. For different reasons, our biologists have concluded that none of the species here, if brought to life on Earth, would survive. Or, at least thrive. They'd all be extinct within one or two generations at the most. He looked blandly at what appeared to be a fossilized chimpanzee, as if considering it, then continued, If these moon creatures were all we ever had on Earth, the entire planet would be quite barren. Except for humans, of course, Blake said quietly. I suppose, Norris said, sounding none too sure. Okay, so I'll ask again, Blake said, annoyance now creeping into his voice. What the hell is this place? These fossils, where did they come from? How are they here? I get that there are variances, which, from a biological perspective, I appreciate. But if these creatures never lived on Earth, where did they live? Norris started to speak, but Blake held up a hand, Norris's mouth shut. But those questions, to be frank, are just a trivial footnote to a bigger issue here. Norris sighed. Which is... That you two know more than you're telling us, Blake said, his tone now devoid of all humor and patience. I don't like secrets. There's a threat here. Norris gave him a pained smile, but it did not meet his eyes. Quite observant. Luckily for you, we were just coming to that, Commander. The quartet of scientists passed out of the large chamber and into a smoothly paved tunnel. Naked light bulbs were strung along the ceiling, now only ten feet above their heads. Blake looked at the smooth walls and his brow furrowed. There were etchings. Blake stopped. Wait, he said. Norris turned back to him impatiently. Mad C and Barbara paused a few yards ahead, their faces blurred shadows in the dimly lit corridor. I'm not going any further until you two start answering questions. I'm here as a representative of NASA and the United States government. I'm not a schoolboy touring the Natural History Museum. Coyness is no longer an option. He looked at their faces, landed on Norris. Understand me, Dr. Norris, when I say I want you to answer my questions. I mean right this goddamn second. Norris's eyes shifted to Mad C, who had her fingers on her lips, mumbling quietly to herself. Very well, he said. Thank you, Blake said, shifting his weight like a cop putting away his sidearm. He pointed to the etchings. For starters, what are these markings? They're not human. Norris didn't look away from Blake. We believe it is a calendar, not unlike the ancient Mayan calendar. There are similar patterns. We've been studying them for years. 
Barbara moved to the wall, ran her fingers along the embedded strings of interwoven shapes, a series of dots and lines running beneath it. Some of these... Yes, this is very close to the Mayan word for male. She moved down the hallway, pointed at another. This one, it looks like... Earth. They all looked at Blake, who had his finger planted on a triangle-shaped etching, intricate designs decorating its interior. Barbara nodded, in agreement. Possibly. Mad C put her hands together, a gesture of prayer. Please, if you'll just come with us. We have to show you, and, and then you might understand. We hope you will. It's why you're here. Blake fumed. He hated the idea of being toyed with, having information dangled and held back. He decided to play along a few moments more. If he still didn't have the answers he wanted, he would move on to more drastic means of inquiry. He smiled gamely. Lead on, Doctor. Mad C offered a slight bow and, turning, continued down the narrow corridor, going deeper and deeper towards the cold center of the moon. Blake followed, the scribbling of aliens chattering all around him, the mimicking skeletons of Earth's beasts scattering the floor behind. 5. Past the end of the corridor was another large door, this one guarded by a hand sensor. Blake noticed it was the first to have this level of security and felt a surge of intensity. Wherever, or whatever, it was being led to, the destination was apparently now just the thickness of a steel door away. His hands clenched as Norris splayed his palm on the black pad adjacent to the door. Madsee turned to Blake and Barbara, her lips twitching with unmistakable nervousness. Or excitement, Blake thought. Jesus, she's sweating. You both have a lot of questions. Please trust that we will tell you everything we know. She looked at Blake, met his eyes momentarily. Everything. Blake nodded. A loud beeping emanated from the door as it slid into the wall on silent rails. For the first time, Blake noticed that Norris had lost some of his swagger. He swallowed, his hand not leaving the pad, and allowed Blake and Barbara to step into the room ahead of him. I've seen it he said, almost abashed, as if it were not an action he was eager to repeat. Blake stepped inside, and his breath caught in his throat. My God, said Barbara from just behind him. Blake studied the far side of the chamber, a room a hundred yards wide and twice the height, and saw a glimmering outline of bones the size of a Chicago skyscraper. Massive spotlights buzzed like insect swarms as they blasted their beams skyward. Blake followed the lights, his mind trying to understand the scope of the creatures they were looking at. He felt more than heard Norris stepping up behind him. Amazing, isn't it? Norris whispered, as if for Blake's ears only. Blake spun, horror on his face. Norris simply smiled, stared up at the creature. The last of the rejects he said louder this time. Barbara, whose face revealed awe versus the stark terror Blake felt, turned to face them. Rejects? Mad C, who had been standing by the door, quietly stepped closer. But not too close, Blake noticed. One theory we're postulating. All of this, all of these samples, they are the ones who didn't make it. God's waste bin, I suppose, she said, laughing nervously. For our planet, at least. 
Blake looked away from her, disgusted, and brought his focus to the impossible monster creeping up the wall before him, the bloated skull a dim cloud in the higher recesses of the room. That theory has one very important flaw, he said, walking towards the wall, past the spotlights, hoping that seeing the thing's bones up close would make it more logical, less maddening. Barbara approached close enough to stand beside him, her head tilted upwards, as if trying to somehow capture the sheer scale of the beast. She put a hand on his arm. He did not pull away. The others, she said, speaking out loud the very thought that had been hiding in the shadows of Blake's reason, just waiting to step into the light and announce itself. We've seen, well, she paused, searching for the right word, variations, at least, of the others. The giraffe, the dinosaurs, those animals are all ones we know about, we've seen or studied. But this, this doesn't exist. Blake abruptly shook his head. His thoughts felt fuzzed, as if he'd just had two shots of whiskey. He turned to find Mad C and Norris, but they were on the opposite sides of the lights, nothing but fuzzy shadows. He started to call out to them, but the words seemed disconnected from his brain, the meaning behind them slippery. He closed his mouth. He barely registered the large sliding door of the chamber ceiling shut. He turned to Barbara, hoping for assistance, for grounding. He hadn't noticed her hand leaving his sleeve. Her face was waxen, her jaw sagged, her eyes were glazed over, trance-like. You will both be given instruction, Mad C said. Blake unzipped his jacket. Sluggishly, as if moving underwater, he reached inside, found the cold metal of his sidearm. The buzz of the spotlights grew louder. Too loud. He felt it vibrating through his teeth, crawling through him, infesting. He squinted into the bright spotlights. The beams grew halos. The room beyond them darkened. Tunnel vision pressed in on his senses. He pulled his sidearm free, pointed it towards the spotlights. I assure you, that won't be necessary, he heard Norris say, his nasally voice coming from beyond the lights, but also from inside his head. Mankind has no further need of weapons, Norris added in an arrogant, hateful tone, and then he laughed, a hysterical, choked sound that chilled Blake's spine. Then Blake heard another voice. This one came from deeper in his consciousness, buried beneath layers of reason, speaking in a language he could not understand, could not fathom. He blinked rapidly, pressing one hand to his temple, tried to will the voice away, to focus on his thoughts, to stay inside himself, stay himself. He saw the blur of a blue outfit. One of them was moving behind the lights. Mad C. Blake raised the gun and fired. One spotlight exploded. The thick surface of the light blew outward in a cloud-like spray of glass dust, but the light continued to shine blindingly. He fired again into the shadows. The voice inside him grew louder. He stopped firing, staggered, dropped to his knees. And he understood. Understood his role, his instructions, for the coming. He squeezed his eyelids shut. The last fragment of sanity flayed like ripped curtains, his mind now fully occupied by the voice, the instructions, the vision shown to him. 
He forced his eyes open, the world a blur through the sudden rush of tears. Barbara was standing once more, her eyes clear. She studied the bones of the creature, the one only slightly different than the ones already on earth, ready to reveal themselves with a flickering of a dimensional gap, a light-switch effect that would finally unveil the horror, enable the merging. Norris and Mad C, or at least the things they were now, suddenly stood before him, stared down at him with pity. Madsy kneeled, looked into his eyes. This will be easier for you if you open yourself to the inevitable. We are ready to evolve, Commander. Can't you see that? Blake steadied himself with one hand. He had the creature's instruction. But he also had his training, the only thing that kept him sane for a few more critical seconds. Blubbering like a child, he raised the gun and fired it into Mad C's face. A burst of spray went up behind her head, dissolving the strength of the light beam. She slumped towards him. The voice was no longer a voice. It was a command. It was pushing him out. He sensed more than saw Norris running for the door. He lifted his gun and fired again, but it was too heavy, the voice too loud. Damn them all, he thought. He felt a hand rest gently on his shoulder. He looked up into Barbara's face. She was smiling. She got on her knees beside him. She pulled the gun from his hand, now weak, now beaten. He looked into the eyes he once knew so well, saw the unshakable calm there, saw the understanding. He shook his head, tears rolled down his cheeks. I won't do it, he said. I'll die first. Barbara put a hand on his cheek, still smiling. He thought about their time together, the beauty of her. For a brief moment, the voice went away, his head filled by a sudden rush of humanity, of all that it once was. He felt the cold metal under his jaw. We know, she said. That was Philip Fracassi's The Rejects, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is, of course, a human with a normal human job and, being totally human, of course has a spouse and pets. When not doing completely normal human things, she, uh, he, human gender pronouns are so confusing, can be found as both editor and narrator here at Tales to Terrify. All communications can be directed to theboojum.org. As always, thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you haven't already, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors, Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we corrupt your imagination with more 
Tales to Terrify. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.